Yeah, well, it's a delight to be here this morning, and uh, certainly um, been so far, and uh, just been really good. Um, do want to report that we had a good weekend last weekend, um, last week when we were at Faith Builders, and um, yeah, just humbled to have the privilege of sitting around the table with uh, some really good men and uh, just a lot of wisdom that I value and, and appreciate and just experience from from them. This morning, um, <coughs> uh, Lord willing, the way that I sense at this point at least, this will be the last message on the series of New Testament that I started some time ago. Um, I, I just, uh, I think I mentioned it before, but my appreciation of the church has has deepened through this uh, through this time and this exercise for me. Trust it has for you as well. And uh, <clears throat> you may not recall start of messages with the passage in Matthew, and I'm going to to conclude this messages. I, I would say took me on a journey of uh, just deep for the as he developed started developing that in my life I what in and uh, the path I'm going to conclude today is one of one of the uh, especially the, the the one verse verse 19 and we're we're sort of going to hold today but it's really what sent me on this journey uh, of of this uh, this series. Uh, message. And I, I just want to, that some of the things that we have experienced in the last several weeks here as a body, some of the things that we've been going through as a body, um, are, are uh, maybe, I'm, I'm going to be touching on some of, the, some of those, those uh, this things that, we, that we've been experiencing about as a body, but it's not because of the, the, the correlation between the current circumstances, rather it's just something that has developed over time in in my studies, and it just coins eyes, um, and who but God could orchestrate that. So uh, I just want to say that it it wasn't premeditated. It was this was the message that I really had wanted to share, but uh, also felt like I wanted to do a lot of sort of groundwork. But here's sort of the, the um, conclusion of, of, of the uh, series that I want to share with you. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 to 19, we recognize this passage of Scripture as the time just before Jesus went to Gethsemane, sometime a little bit before that. I call it the graduation ceremony that he had with his disciples. And he took him to a place, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail of that, <clears throat> but he took him to 
a place that uh, that was uh, Caesarea Philippi, which was which was entrenched in idol worship. It was as if he took them to the heart of of uh, Satan's realm. Today, if you would go to Caesarea Philippi or the area that was Caesarea Philippi, you can still see niches carved into the face of the rock where they would put their idols and where they would worship. And that's where Jesus took his disciples when he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? And what was the response? What did they say? What was the first response? No, what was the first one? That's, that's later. Some say you're Elias. Some say you're John the Baptist. And Jesus turns back and says, but who do you say that I am? Then Peter, bold Peter, impulsive Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then said, Upon this rock, now the, 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 the name Peter means pebble, pebble. And some people would interpret that, that response of Jesus to say that upon Peter, I'm going to build my church. And that's why we have the Basilicus over, St. Peter's Basilicus over in Rome. Because upon the, upon the rock Peter, I will build my church. No, 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 no. That is not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying upon the confession that you've made, I'm going to build my church. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that confession, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this confession that you have made, he just said upon this rock, on this confession that you have made, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And before I begin the assignment, I want to reflect. I want to. I want to. I want to. Um, I want to reflect on several of the words that Jesus made concerning Peter's confession. There's probably a lot more that should and could be said. But let me just bring out a couple of them. First he said, I want to look at three, three different phrases. I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Somehow when I bring it over to this computer, it doesn't always jive. And I'm not sure why. But anyhow. The highlighted word casino. I want to go back and talk about I will build my church. This statement comes from the mouth of Jesus. We are not our own. Belonging to Jesus anchors us firmly in an identity that supersedes any earthly or temporal identity. That we, may, that we may have had from the, from the past. Now, Jan, I appreciate what you talked about 
um, your identity and, and trying to look back and and um, and have some roots. There's something within each of us that wants an identity. And we label people and groups of people to identify them as such and such or such and such a group. The history of our people have been identified as Anabaptists, the Wittertoffers, or the again baptizers is the literal translation of that. For our practice of breaking away from the mode of baptizing infants or babies and saying that Scripture really gives no uh, assent to that, that what, what we need to do is baptize upon our confession of Jesus Christ. And uh, with that transition, we developed into a stream of people with a number of distinct traits and values and practices. But regardless of the labels that have been attached to us, we must see ourselves as belonging to Jesus. We are His, we are not our own. Our vision must be shaped by who we are in Him, not by what others have called us or by what we may have evolved into throughout the centuries. Ultimately, there will be no such entity as the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, or the Mennonite Church. There is only the Church of Jesus Christ. And we have no other authority or freedom to make the church other than his church. Now, let me be very clear with this. And I just want to say that what you did not hear me say or promote is a great ecumenical movement. Nor did you hear me speak negatively about denominations, per se. I believe that various denominations and entities of Christ-centered churches in the world have the potential to bring value into his kingdom much like the various gifts do within the body of Christ. So I'm truly okay with various denominations. That's just not a big hang-up for me. I think some, I just remember, and I think I've shared this with you, my good friend uh, Norm Roy, who was, believe it or not, uh, born again, he came, he, he came to know the Lord. <laughs> he was very strong Catholic at that time. And he came to know the Lord in a revival going on in the Catholic Church. And uh, after some time and after some growth, he joined up with a uh, more of a charismatic church. And when we met in Red Lake, uh, Norm was, uh, you know, and he told me later on, he said, James, I thought the only way that the Spirit would be present when, when we worship was if there were manifestations going on. And he says, you've taught me something, James. You've taught me how to study the Word. Well, he was not referring just to me, but the group of people that he connected with. He said, you, you, you people know how to study the Word. I said, Norm, I need you too. You've livened me up. You've, you've, you've taught me how to raise my hands and worship to the Lord. And so I'm not hung up over denominations. I think it's just part of the big picture of how God's bringing his church together. We have, we have various strengths and weaknesses within each denomination. Well, the second thing, the second observation um, that I want to make is that um, 
the phrase where he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Talking about his church. Now pause with me to consider the insinuation of Jesus' words. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you catch the implication of his statement? The implication is that there is going to be opposition. <clears throat> there will be opposition. In the, in the past, I've sort of, I've sort of uh, looked at this statement primarily through the lens of Satan bringing opposition against the church and not being able to succeed. And I think there's, that's true. Part of that is true. But I also now understand that ultimately all evil comes from Satan and if you peel back enough of layers, it is Satan who kills, steals, and destroys. But Satan uses people to accomplish his work, sometimes. Sometimes he uses people. So could part of Jesus' statement uh, be taken in consideration of our plans and our work and our vision of what we want to accomplish in the church and our self-will that also sometimes opposes the work that God wants to accomplish. So think about that. Um, any consideration of vision for the church that I have for the church must first fully be embraced by God's plan. And then I must enter into that plan or else I could be part of the opposition that Jesus is talking about here. The third observation that I want to make, by the way, I'm a little slow on these points here, but there's a third observation I want to make, and I want to talk about this last phrase where it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. This is originally, 10, 12 years ago, when I started this journey, this is the phrase that caught my attention because I'm always looking to keys to unlock the doors. When Jesus said, I will give you the keys, what was he talking about? I will give you the keys to the kingdom. What's he talking about? Jesus makes this statement after he made the two previous statements. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So he made those two statements. Then he comes along and says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What is Jesus talking about when he makes that claim? And how does it fit into the context of this passage of Scripture? Well, I want to use the who, what, when, and where uh, questions to discover what Jesus is talking about. Who is the subject? What is the item? When will the keys be given? And where will it take place? So let's go back through those. Who's the subject? In this passage of Scripture, who is the subject? Well, we've already touched on it. And it is Jesus is referring to those who make the same confession that Peter made. 
You're the son, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. It refers to those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ and make him Lord of their life. In essence, it is the church that has been given the set of keys. Okay? So those who are redeemed by Christ, that's the subject. The church, you as an individual, you've been given a set of keys. Well, I already told you the next one. What is the item? It's a set of keys. Uh, I came across something that, I w- that astounded me when I was doing this study. I never, I never before. Um, but the Greek word for key is kleis. Now, I don't know if that's important to you or not, and it really is sort of just a side note. It, it certainly doesn't change the dynamics of this passage. But did you know that there is a, a, a company that makes doorknobs and locks that's called Kleis? And I thought, wow, this company picked up on the Greek word for key. The Kleis company makes doorknobs, and that's the word. And it simply means exactly what I have up there, a key as shutting a lock literally or figuratively. So Jesus is talking about either a literal key or possibly a figurative key that has been given to the church. Various interpretations on this statement have been given, but a lot of those have not satisfied me. So I sort of went on my own quest to to just try to dig in what Jesus was talking about when he's talking about this set of keys. And of course, like I said before, it took me into this series of messages. The third one. Yes, I just, uh, I brought up that. Oh, yes, let me just mention this. I believe the key is directly related and explained in the following phrase of this verse or this passage of this text. And the reason that I've come to conclude this is because the statement that he makes, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, uh, the, 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 that's, that statement is tied with the conjunction word and twice. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and, so it's conjunction word there, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So the keys lies, that conjunction ties the keys and what has been given to us. Okay? This is important. Hang on to that thought, because we're going to come back to it. Uh, According to rabbinical literature, binding and loosing refers to what was permitted and what was not permitted. So rabbis, when they would talk about binding and loosing, it was about talking about what they would permit, what they wouldn't permit. And I'm going to touch on that a little bit more. But before we do that, let's go back to the last two, the when and the where. When will the keys be given? It's in this passage. When will it be given? Any response? Well, 
the answer is fairly obvious if we believe the who. If we think that if we believe that the who is the church of Jesus Christ, then it is always present right now. It's not in the past, it's not the apostolic age, although it was there then, but it's not it's not just for back then and it's not some futuristic time that God's going to give us these keys. It's the present day church that has been given this set of keys. So the when is the present state. And where will it take place? In heaven? I think it's significant that in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus prayed, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven as it is done on earth. come thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven so where are the keys going to be given where is that going to take place that's what it says what you bind on where earth will be bound in heaven what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven now that's significant we have something at our fingertips and I don't I'm not sure if we understand the full impact of this passage of Scripture. I want to. I'm on a journey. I think I know more about it today than I did 10 years ago, but there's still more that I want to know about. I'm going to give you what I know about, or at least as God lays it on my heart. Now, I know. Let me just say it this way. Let me just say it this way, that... um, When a group of believers agree on a certain procedure, if it's in accordance to Scripture, that is the way it will be sealed in heaven. We're going to come back to this. Now, I know that flies in the face of mainstream Western thinking. The generation of day has all but lost this concept or at least rapidly losing this concept. And I don't want to paint a doomsday picture here. It's not my intent at all. But I want to help us think critically about this concept and how it applies to Berea Christian Fellowship. Okay? That's what I want to look for. So, let's go back through here. I'm a little behind here. Sorry about that. Okay, let me just go back through. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Who's the subject? The church. What is the item? It is the keys of the kingdom. When is the keys going to be given? Today. And where will it take place? On earth. There are two things that push and pull when we talk about applying this principle that we find in this text today. One is, A, is our Western cultural mindset. Second thing is that the, the generation that we have today and, and how that mindset has shaped the generation of today, okay? So we have to think in those terms. What took place that brought us where we are today where this is pushing and pulling in our lives? Let's go back quite a few years to the age of enlightenment. Now, 
want you to think through this process because there's a major sh- cultural shift, major, or let me just make it as a statement, major cultural shifts typically take place as reactionary responses to good ideas and practices that have gone bad. Okay? So the age of enlightenment typically thought about in the 17th and 18th century. Um, The age of enlightenment was a reaction to many abuses of institutional authority, both in society and in the church. Enlightenment thinkers, as they are called today, I'm sure you've heard that term already, enlightenment thinkers back in the 17th and 18th century, argued against the long-standing class distinctions that gave nobility privileges and kept the masses of common folks in poverty and in illiteracy and in in ignorance. So I talked about that in in several of our messages. Remember, we talked about the Dark Ages and what happened in there in that time frame. Now, this was approximately about 100 to 150 years later as they were coming out of the Dark Ages. On this side of history, we have a group of people that began to think entirely different than what they had the previous eight, six to 800 years, maybe up to 1,000 years before that. I'm talking worldwide, okay? What came out of that Enlightenment thinking, that Enlightenment age, is that the equality of man became one of the new doctrines, and nowhere was it more embodied than in the new world. Think about it. That's why we had hundreds, yes, thousands of people that migrated from the old world to the new. And by the way, might add, they still do. There's a reason behind it. And I want to tell you why. You you may or may not have thought about this before. Before I tell you why, let me first read what part of the Declaration of Independence says. Part of what it says Right at the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, almost at the beginning, it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unamiable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's our history as Western thinkers, okay? Whether you know it or not, we think entirely different from the rest of most of the people in the world. We are freedom thinkers. We, we, we think in terms of opportunity. Now, that is slipping away very rapidly, And we're not going to go into that, why it is. But as a whole, in the past, for the most part, we have thought in terms of opportunity. 
Anything you desire lies at your fingertip. The question is simply, how bad do you want it? That's where we come from. That's how we think. Opportunity is right at our doorstep. We're not hampered by the government more now than we were earlier. But in the past, the government has actually promoted freedom of thinking and entrepreneurship. We had things at our fingertips that allowed us to become successful. Think about this. I just want I just threw a, I'm just going to throw out a couple of facts here in front of you. I want to throw out a couple uh, multi or, or uh, millionaire facts to you. And most people think that millionaires are made because they've had rich dads to make them rich. That's not true. At all. 7% of U.S. households are millionaires. Now, I understand that million dollars is not worth as much today as it was 30 years ago, 60 years ago. But even today, 70% or 7%, think of it, households are millionaires. The average millionaire files bankruptcy 3.5 times in his lifetime. Now, what does that tell you? That talks about opportunity. How can one go into bankruptcy three times and end up a millionaire? It's opportunities are all around us. 80% earn their cash on their own. Papa didn't hand it to them. 80% of these 7% of households have gotten there because they latched on to opportunity. And more interestingly than anything else, look at this one. Russian Americans are the highest concentration of millionaires with $1.1 trillion worth of assets, which equals about 5% of the wealth in the United States. Now think about this. Why, why are Russian Americans the greatest concentration of wealthy people? Why do you think? They're the most grateful for opportunity. They grew up under communism, and they know it doesn't work. So they migrated over here, and they said, a little bit of hard work, a lot of entrepreneurship, and we can make ourselves wealthy, and they did. Now, I just threw up these facts, not that I'm promoting people becoming wealthy or billionaires. That should never be, according to Scripture, be our goal. I'm just saying, as a Western thinker, this is how we think. <clears throat> Most people in the world they don't have the opportunity. If they'd if they'd have if they'd have just a little bit of opportunity, it's not that they're lazy. My brother Tim lived down in, in El Salvador. Uh, for eight years, and he says, James, he said, those people are 
hard-working people. We don't even know what it means to work hard. They're hard-working people. They just don't have opportunity. There's a downside to all of this, okay? This cultural shift that has happened out of the Enlightenment era has been in favor primarily of oneself. And the church has taken a very strong hit as a result of it. In the West, we simply cannot imagine anyone but me being the ultimate, the ultimate determiner of major choices in life. I am the determining factor of what I believe and what I value and what I hold uh, deeply. And, and, and nowadays, even what I think is right and wrong. I am the one that makes that decision. Any group that attempts to prescribe or even strongly urge what I ought to do or not do with my life, or what I ought to believe or not believe, or to determine what is right or wrong, for me is seriously out of place, and at best, abusive in its worst. That's the way we think, because of our, of our, our cultural shift that has taken place. Any group that prescribes what we, how we should think, how we should believe, what determines what is right and wrong, according to mainstream culture, is seriously out of place at best and abusive at worst. And the church has taken a hit of that. I'm the first to raise my hand and, and just say that there's no way I would want to go back and re-enter the world of the Dark Ages. I, I, I am grateful Many of, the, of, of many of the corrective measures that have been taken uh, with the enlightenment um, that, that came out of that, the oppression of the lower class people was lifted, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that, that slaves were freed. I'm grateful that torturous punishment was done away and that education is offered to all. I'm grateful for that. But my lament is that the pendulum has swung so far to the opposite degree that today individual authority trumps all other jurisdiction. That's my lament. I, I think we've, we've taken a very good thing and allowed the pendulum to swing way too far to the right. And, and as a result of it, <coughs> Individual authority, what I deem is best, what I think, how I think, trumps all other jurisdictions. The upshot of this shift has resulted in significant reduction of legitimate authority. God prescribed authority, jurisdictions. I'm talking about people like parents, uh, policemen church leaders, or whatever jurisdiction, employers, whatever jurisdiction God has established, it has weakened that, and in some cases, wrecked it completely. And, and as a result of it, it is affecting our social structure. 
Bronson worked at Burger King back when he was, how old were you, Bronson? Where are you? I don't even see you there. 17 years old. He worked there at Burger King. And one day, the shift manager told one of the other employees to go clean the bathrooms. And the employee looked at her and said, no, I'm not going to. It's not my job. And he got away with it. Now, there was a day, and not that long ago, even in my lifetime, when that guy would have gotten fired so fast, he wouldn't know what hit him. But you know what? Because of our, the abuse of our rights, the privileges and our rights, that, em, that employer was powerless to do anything about that. Our insistence on human rights. And that has, that shift has, uh, has is, is happening very, very rapidly. I want to think, I want to help you think a little bit about cultural norms and the ensuing consequences. I want to think about that. How far this age of enlightenment has taken us and what this mindset has produced, okay? We now have a culture that overemphasizes individual rights and choices at the expense of group strength, which ultimately limits its ability to meet basic human needs. I want you to think about that. Let me give you several examples so you know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to start with some things that are way out in left field that we're pretty well not, doesn't affect us, and then I want to just sort of reel it in a lot closer home as we go through it. Overemphasis of individual rights at the expense of group strength or group voice. Since the emphasis in our culture insists on individual rights, we have now an epidemic of broken family structures. That uh, as human, as, as husbands and wives move on when their marriages no longer serves their present uh, interest or their personal interest. In our culture, in our mainstream culture, we now have individuals today that value mobility and freedom. And then this carries over, sadly, into our marriages when people want to opt out of or get out of or move on if things don't work. It is a restless age that is looking for a quick and easy satisfaction. Hence, personal commitment to a marriage relationship is weak at best. The resulting consequence of this is that hundreds and thousands of children and teenagers are marred for life as they watch mom and dad go separate ways. If this was their model of commitment, guess what the adults the, the adult child's level of commitments looks like. And sadly, far too often, 
the church has given assent to the moral decay that has swept our families across the nation. Equally far left is our ins in our insistence on individual rights. It kills well over a million babies each year in the U.S. alone because individuals pursue sex for their own interests and decide they won't want the responsibility of the child. That's where this mindset is taking us and has taken us. I want to draw it in a little closer to home. You say, well, that's way out there. That's really not where we're at. It is where we're at as a, as a culture, but maybe not personally as a subculture. And so let's bring it a little bit closer home. With the breakdown in community and relationships of today, people not only value their own opinions, but they also have become increasingly reluctant to make long-term commitments beyond anything that is immediate or has a foreseeable end. And we probably see this best, or one of the ways that we see this, is the growing trend for youth, the hesitation in our youth to get married at a young age. The average age for the American, for an American to get married, according to one source, has reached a record high. And the age is 27 years old for women and 29 years old for men. That's the average age. Now, this jump has, has increased significantly from just 25 years ago. In 1990, the average age was 23 for women and 26 for men. And why are we seeing the increased delay in marriage? I think it has a direct correlation to the fact that there's a reluctance to make commitments to long-term relationships. We now have a, a generation of people. Think about it. If, our, if, if, the, if the, the, the divorce rate in our nation is over half, over half of the, of, of the, of the marriages end in divorce, half of our generation today have experienced that of the children they've gone through that and their concept of co long term commitment it doesn't compute and um, I think we see it manifesting itself in their hesitation to get married at a younger age now I'm not against getting married at an older age, uh, not at all. Um, in fact, we've really encouraged our children to give the first fruits of their lives just to, to the work of the Lord. So if the, if the motivation is right, uh, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. But if it's simply because, hey, I, I don't want to commit to anything, uh, we got a problem. We see the same tendency when it comes to church commitment. Ouch, now we're getting a little bit closer here, okay? We see the same tendency when it comes to church commitment. Attendance in many churches across the West is decreasing rapidly. I see the statistics all the time. George Barna, who uh, is, a, is a Christian writer and does a lot of statistical uh, data, 
uh, his books are filled with the concern of how rapidly church attendance and church commitment is, is declining in the West. This is not just something that I'm coming up with. In fact, the popular trend today is for people to attend church more readily than to join as a member. If they do join, people want a clear understanding that it will not interfere with personal, their own personal pursuits. I came across an article by Tom uh, Rayner. Have anyone read some of his books? Tom's a good uh, author. And I read one of his articles that really intrigued me, and I'm going to read a part of his uh, a quote that he made um, as the result, in order to give the result. Why are we seeing that lack of commitment in church? And here's what Tom said. All the research, studies, of which I am aware, including my own, return to one major theme to explain the exodus of church members, a sense of some need not being filled. In other words, these members have ideas of what a local congregation should provide for them. And they have never, and they, and they leave because these provisions have not been met. Certainly, we recognize there are many legitimate claims by church members of unfulfilled expectations. It can undoubtedly be the fault of the local congregation and its leaders, and I would verify that. But many times, probably more than we would like to believe, a church member leaves a body because he or she has a sense of entitlement. I would therefore suggest that the main reason People leave a church is because they have an entitlement mentality rather than a servant mentality. Wow. That's the fruit of the, enti- of the Enlightenment age? If so, we are regressing rather than improving. I want to bring this maybe just one step closer home. And in this step, um, I know it would have stepped on my toes 10 years ago. And when I share this, I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind but myself. The mentality that we have been referencing particularly is particularly concerning when it comes to issues of the church. Church authority, and by the way, I know that when I use that phrase, there's going to be some of you that are right away going to think about leadership. That's not what I'm talking about. I just want to stop right now and explain what I mean when I refer to church authority. It can include uh, uh, church leadership. I'm talking about what I'm talking about when I refer to church authority. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the corporate body making authoritative decisions as a unified body, okay? So when I talk about church authority, I'm talking about you as well as the leadership. We together come to levels of understanding and agreement, okay? So don't get hung up on church authority, that phrase. But church authority is 
expressly undermined it today. Church, has, church authority has been so undermined that if a congregation decides to require something of its members, it is commonly labeled as legalistic. And if a church attempts to enforce what its members have agreed to require, it can be labeled abusive. And please, please understand that I know that I'm, I'm, I'm stroking with a broad brush. This is especially true in the broad Western church. Our, our conservative Mennonite churches may not be quite that far out there, but the truth is we have been deeply influenced by the greater culture. Deeply influenced. Friends, what I'd like to ask this morning and what I'd like to challenge you with is what does Jesus say concerning this cultural shift? What, what does he have to say about it? Because that's where we have to go to, right? That's where we have to go to. According to our text, Jesus values group strength over individual rights, individualistic rights. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. After much contemplation, thought, and study on this verse here, I have concluded that Jesus is giving church authority to the local body of believers to make corporate decisions as long as it does not violate scriptural principles. And when that decision is made at a local level, in the context of the local body of believers, that is the way it will stand in the records of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. If this if this is true theology, then, then we would do well to take caution how we react or how we respond to these corporate decisions. Now, I, I'm going to take you way outside of your comfort zone or your zone of comfort and, 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 and think about something. I, I, I chose a setting outside of this body purposely. But I, I chose it to, to make a point, okay? We have in our community some neighboring churches that require the married men in their congregations to have beards on their faces for whatever reason. I don't know what that reason is, but that's what they ask of people that would become part of their body. If this is a body agreement, if this, I'm going to call it rule, if you will, is a decision that they have made corporately and that they have committed themselves to, even though Scripture does not require this as a prerequisite for salvation, and as long as it does not violate a principle of Scripture, that is the way it stands in heaven. 
for a member of that congregation to then rebel against that decision of church authority, even though his premise could be based on the fact that it is not a salvation issue, he would be in violation in the courts of heaven. with me? You look a little blank. Are you shocked or what? The opposite is also true. If that same congregation has the ability to look at their former decision and to come to the conclusion to set aside the practice of wearing the beard based on the fact that it does not violate scriptural principles when that church authority releases that decision on the congregation, it is no longer bound in heaven. They're free to do that. I think I've said enough. I want to conclude with two thoughts. Number one, God values church authority. Again, I'm not talking about just pastoral leadership. That's included. I'm talking about corporate body decisions that a, that, a, that a congregation makes. I call that church authority. God values church authority. The second thing is individual rights are weakened, or weakens the strength generated by corporate body decisions. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have Keith close. Father God, uh, I'm grateful for your church. I'm more grateful today than I've ever been before, and I'm so glad that I can be part of that great bride of Christ. Very undeserving, nothing that I have done to deserve that, and so it's simply by your grace that you've invited me into that, and I'm so grateful as well as the millions of others across the world, whoever it is that names the name of Christ and follows him, takes up his cross and follows me, follows him, Jesus. Um, wow, what, what, a, what a privilege. And Lord, continue to teach me, to, to continue to teach us as a congregation how passionate you are about your body of local believers. And just help us to grow in, in just in unity and oneness of spirit and in church authority and just realizing the, the incredible privilege that you've given to the local body to make some of these decisions. And the way that we decide it, that's the way that you will record it in heaven. Um, help us be wise in those decisions. And give us a clear sense of direction. We give you praise and thanks. In your name we pray.